Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. So thank you very much, Candice, for joining me today on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we spoke some time ago uh, about systems change for the Ashoka Systems Change podcast, and that was very interesting indeed. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to talking to you about truckers against trafficking, but I guess from a different perspective, really, to try and get an understanding of, of the journey you've been on more generally as a social entrepreneur. So can you tell us a little bit by way of background about truckers against trafficking, uh, its origins, and, and maybe just set the scene a little bit with an overview of the scope and of your operations today. So really, TAT is trying to raise up the largest mobile army of transportation professionals to combat human trafficking. So recognizing that um, the exploitation of human beings is occurring through force, fraud, and coercion for either the purposes of commercial sex or forced labor, and you have a controller, a victimizer, right, a, a trafficker who is profiting off of the back of their victims. So human trafficking is indeed modern day slavery. And what is the scale of the problem and where do truckers fit in? So globally, there's over 40 million slaves today. That means there are more slaves um, currently than at any other time in the history of the world, including the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, human trafficking generates about $150 billion in profits every year. This is why they do it, right? This is a crime of greed and a crime of power. Um, you know, from a United States perspective, it's happening in all 50 states. There's no state um, that's immune from this crime. And um, thousands of, of children are forced into prostitution every year in, in the United States. Uh, and disproportionately, the victims here in the United States are women and girls of color. Um, and so for us, when we were looking at those kinds of realities and the fact that the FBI were finding women and children forced into prostitution at truck stops, we recognized we needed to uh, rally the trucking industry to combat it. Right. And the trucking industry clearly uh, it plays a key role. I mean, one hears stories uh, about this, but how big a role is the motorways and the transportation links? Yeah. So, you know, traffickers are constantly moving victims, whether by planes or by car or by, again, trucks um, or buses, you, you know, you name it, they're taking their victims um, from location to location to location. And so what well, we saw there was an opportunity, right? So at a truck stop, at a motel, uh, at a, um, even a place of business, right? Truckers load and unload out of pretty much every business in the United States. And they're traversing streets, roadways, back alleys, highways, I mean, you name it, rest areas. And so um, the opportunity is, is huge. And TAT's now expanded into the bus industry as well. So it was really a matter of helping these guys understand the realities of what they were looking at and then helping them know how to engage in order to assist that victim. Right. And how long did it take you to understand the problem and to find a way into it, to think about truckers 
So, you know, not very long. I actually, in, in 2008, had put on a, a conference in here in Denver, Colorado, and my mom and my sister attended one of the workshops where the um, speaker was talking about training gas station employees along our nation's highways. Um, and we were thinking about that and then looked at the statistic about um, the FBI finding women and children forced into truck, uh, prostitution at truck stops. And we said, we should really be approaching the trucking industry. Um, and so the connection was there. Um, and, you know, that's, we just went in that direction, went to our first truck show, the big rig down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, um, you know, that was October of 2009. And that's just really when it clicked for me. I'm like, the majority of these guys are good guys. They just think it's truck stop prostitution that most people want to be out there. And we just have to pull back that veil, right? We just have to help them understand really what's going on behind the scenes. What's the backstory of that individual who's knocking on their door? Um, and once they understand that, you know, we, we have to help them understand how to report this effectively. Yes, yes. And, and what was your background at that point? What were you uh, involved in? in nonprofits, social work in one manner or another? What motivated you to think, actually, I'm, I can do this and I, and I want to do this? Yeah. So I had no formal training. I have a bachelor's in elementary ed. I have a master's in Christian studies from Denver Seminary. At the time, I was a stay-at-home mom with my two kids. Um, and I just felt compelled. I read about human trafficking. Um, that's what urged me, you know, motivated me to put on that conference. And once I understood the reality of how big the trucking industry is and the impact they could make, I was like, this just makes sense. Of course, I'm going to do this. Um, so I just jumped in with two feet. Um, I basically, TAT started as an initiative of our family's ministry back in 2009. By 2011, I had taken it over, become executive director, turned it into its own 501c3 put a trucking board into place and just went from there, building out models uh, for law enforcement and state agencies and approaching every tier of the trucking industry from a strategic approach. And really I learned as I went, um, I learned, I became a student of the industry and really sought out their expertise uh, in terms of how they function, what their challenges are, uh, where they have some great opportunities um, where they have really good alignment with law enforcement and state agencies and so on and so forth. And that's where TAT fit. I just saw those places where there were intersections, right? Where there was alignment and overlap. And if we could get the trucking industry and law enforcement working together to close loopholes with, uh, to traffickers, well then all the better. So a um, lot of learning. <laughs> but uh, totally worth it because that's what's happening today, which is great. The way you describe what you're doing and, 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 and uh, pulling down the veil or, or revealing the, the, you know, the, the personal stories and, and uh, you know, explaining the origins of, of many of these uh, trafficked women and so forth. How obvious was that at the beginning uh, that that would be important? And can you talk about just how, how you began to communicate that and uh, clearly the trucking industry is, is very large and very widely distributed across America as well. So how did you then think, uh, okay, where do I start? 
Yeah, so from the beginning, we knew that survivor voices were essential. And one of our key partners, I empathize, who fights human trafficking through the arts and media, um, that was always their approach in terms of docu-style training films. And so I had seen actually uh, 60 Minutes years ago where a truck driver had made a call uh, rest that led to the rescue of a 15 and 14-year-old set of cousins. The 15-year-old was recovered that night by law enforcement. A week later, her family <laughs> busted down the door and rescued her cousin. Um, and so that made an impression on me. I contacted 60 Minutes and somehow tracked the, the survivor down. And she said, yes, yeah, she would be willing to, uh, we explain what we're doing. We wanted to create a training film that would train the trucking industry um, to basically create more guys like the one who made a call on her behalf. And um, she sat down with us. And so from the very beginning in our DNA, our first training film had Sherry's voice and it still does today, running through it, telling her story, uh, humanizing, right? Uh, the, the people that they actually see out there on the lot, helping them understand the reality of what traffickers do to them. Um, so that's always, and will continue to be part of Tad's DNA. And, you know, when you talk about the scope of the industry, I mean, 7 million strong in the United States. There are over 400,000 trucking companies. Um, now, 97% operate 20 trucks or fewer. Um, so for us, we recognize, you know what, there's no way, and I was the only employee from 2011 to mid-2014, um, I could go into 400,000 trucking companies and do a presentation. And so we said, I have to have a training film. Um, and, and again, started pushing it out through state trucking associations and national trucking associations. And of course, trying to get some really big partners to come on board. Ryder was a really key initial partner. Travel Centers of America, one of the largest truck stop chains was a very early adopter. And once you get some of the big guys on board, that helps your reputation in the eyes of others. Then we got the, the biggest national trucking association, the American Trucking Associations, whose COO now serves on our board of directors, right? So all of a sudden then, you know, we had legitimacy uh, in, in the eyes of, you know, potential partners, which was extremely helpful. And what we also found was, once our video actually made it in front of presidents and CEOs of companies and safety directors, they were pretty moved. They were pretty moved because again, a lot of these guys, they trucked themselves. And so they'd seen truck press stop prostitution for years and years. And so when you help reveal what's actually going on, uh, the motivation to get involved and do something about it is, is pretty high. That's, that's very interesting. I guess the other side of the coin is communicating to the truckers and finding a way of doing that in a delicate way where you're not blaming them or, you know, that they might feel that they are, you know, the problem in some sense, or they might feel that you think they are the problem. So how did you go about that? And what's your approach to, you know, communication there? Absolutely. That, that too was essential in our DNA. Um, our mission is to educate, equip, empower and mobilize the trucking industry. And so from the beginning, of course, I mean, you pick a profession, you know there's buyers in it. Why would pimps be bringing them into truck stops if they weren't finding buyers? I mean, no matter, again, no matter what the profession is, you have some bad apples, but the majority of truckers are good guys. And so if our thought from the, the, the very beginning was to empower them. And so our most popular poster 
um, I said, you know, let's see a trucker post. And the word, the verbiage was everyday heroes needed. And really, again, it was just a matter of you're already out there. This is in the course of your everyday jobs. You can be a change maker, right? You can, you can help to drive freedom, make freedom a reality for this individual if you take a second look. So we always took an empowerment approach. We see truck stops as great allies in this. They're not, they're not part of the problem. This is public property. This is, this is a crime that comes to their doorstep. But if they're trained, if their employees are trained, and we just had a great success story come in from one of our longtime partners um, uh, where a victim was recovered at one of their locations because their cashier was paying attention and knows the signs to look for and was able to help get her away from her trafficker. So, you know, it was always about the opportunity and, and empowering these guys. And, you know, we knew it was working um, when truck show after truck show, we would stop uh, truck drivers. And basically their response after about a two minute spiel was, I have daughters, I have granddaughters. How can I be a trucker against trafficking? Um, and so, you know, that's really what we were tapping into. You know, you see it, now you understand it, now you can go and make a difference. That's very interesting. Now, you talked about getting some of the, 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 the very large trucking organizations and representative organizations on board. At the very beginning, how did you go about getting support from, from uh, organizations that had reputations? Uh, it's always difficult at the beginning afterwards, once you get a critical mass, we get one or two on board and others will as well. But I guess the, the first one or two is, is, is trickier. Yes. And, you know, initially we did a, a letter writing campaign. It was my mom who did this just a straight, like cold, it's almost like a cold call, right? Where you just send this out, hey, and basically saying human trafficking is in your backyard, but you can be part of the solution. Um, and it didn't yield a huge response, but it actually did yield a response from a group called Transport for Christ, who sets up mobile chapels at truck stops and, and tries to minister to, to drivers that way. And guess what? They knew the folks at Travel Centers of America. And so they got us an introduction and uh, they watched our training DVD. Uh, one of their VPs watched our training DVD, walked it down the hall to the CEO and said, you have to watch this. And that was it. That's how we got that first partner. Um, and say, similarly, uh, we had gotten, again, a, a random speaking engagement um, at the California Trucking Association's meeting. I got 10 minutes in front of their audience. Um, and that's how we got UPS, uh, initial UPS board member. And I remember this, this man turning around and said, I have five minutes at a logistics conference to speak. I want to give you my five minutes. And um, I went to this massive logistics conference and Ryder was in the audience. And after that, we got Ryder. Um, and so word begins to spread. Um, different individuals talk to, you know, they talk to each other. Um, people started introducing us to, you know, the ATA and this company over here. Um, Ryder was actually instrumental in getting um, manufacturers on board with TAT as well. And that's actually where we started getting some initial funding in 2014. So, you know, it, it really was um, taking any kind of opportunity in our industry um, to, to speak, to get the message out. And then we just started to see early champions emerge and just men and women who felt extremely passionate about this once they understood it and just wanted to continue to open doors 
uh, for the message and for companies to adopt uh, the training and get on board with us. That's great. And organizationally, um, at the beginning, as you were saying, it was you and then your mom helped out as well. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? I mean, what's the scale of, of the organization now in terms of number of employees? And maybe just talk about how that evolved over time, Candice. Yeah, so TAP began as an initiative of our family's ministry, Chapter 61. And that was back in 2009, March 2009. And so it was just me, my mom, and my sister, um, basically, who... who <laughs> We're doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We all, uh, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom. My mom and my other sister had other, you know, had full-time jobs. And so we were just kind of pitch hitting. But I was working with I Empathize on creating the training DVD during that time. So by 2011, had the training DVD, started getting interest. And I said, that's it. You know, TAT needs to be at one, its own 501c3. And two, I, you know, I'm going to take it over. I'm going to become the executive director which actually caused a little bit of controversy in my family because um, they didn't want to separate it from the ministry. And um, <laughs> there, we had a little bit of a debate, but thankfully, um, you know, my idea prevailed and I did, I took it over. I put a trucking board into to place and um, was the only employee again from 2011 until the summer of 2014 where I was able to hire my big sister, um, who's now TAT's deputy director, as well as our first administrative specialist. And that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, so, and today, you know, we have um, 12 full-time folks and one part-time um, staff member. So we're still a small team, but we have incredible span of partnerships. Um, across the United States and now up into Canada and down into Mexico. Um, again, of people who just are super passionate, like-minded, work their tails off uh, to get this mission going. So um, it, it, it's been quite a journey. And But I will tell you, being the only employee um, and running the helm, it, it did give me time to really, again, one, be a student of the industry, and two, not just dream, but to put some of these scalable pieces uh, into place and build a really solid infrastructure for TAT without a lot of red tape, um, because it was this was just me. So uh, that's how I was just kind of running the show, and uh, it ended up being you know the the same DNA. Um, I mean, these principles we still function with today you know, we see our partners, they're industry experts, we continue to learn from them. It's always about empowerment, never about blame. Survivors always have a voice and we let them, you know, speak it strongly. In fact, now we have one survivor leader full-time on staff that assists with training law enforcement and our part-time employee is also a survivor leader that helps train industry members in law enforcement. Um, and we will always continue in those ways. And again, continue to be a student of the industry and recognize that their challenges um, are, are also our challenges too. And how do we figure out workarounds so that we can free these guys up to, to again, fight human trafficking in the course of their everyday jobs. The Glacier Trust enables climate change adaptation in the remote mountain communities of Nepal and campaigns for more and better adaptation. Over the last five years, the Glacier Trust has enabled the construction of two agroforestry resource centres in the Himalayan foothills, 
that support farmers to transform their livelihoods and local environments to adapt to the impacts of climate change. The Glacier Trust is showing how adaptation can be done in mindful, ecological and socially just ways. To find out more, visit theglaciertrust.org or connect via Twitter at The Glacier Trust. Can you talk a bit about the relationship with law enforcement, Candice, and maybe also explain what happens with regards to the truckers and the victims when an incident is spotted? Yeah, so that was early on, I recognized that we not only needed to train the trucking industry, but also the law enforcement that show up. It does no good if a trucker makes a phone call and the cop shows up and arrests a 15-year-old as a child prostitute, even though by federal law, there is no such thing as a child prostitute. And so we began working particularly with Highway Patrol. Those are the guys here in the United States that actually the, the commercial uh, vehicle enforcement units um, who work with the industry already and regulate the industry. Um, and, and again, helping to educate them on human trafficking. So many of them still today um, don't receive human trafficking training from the academy. So, you know, we were helping to bring that piece, that education piece to their attention. But we also wanted their help. We didn't just want to train them on what to look for and how to take a victim-centered approach. We wanted them to help us reach the trucking industry and now the bus industry in their states. And so we created the Iowa Motor Vehicle Enforcement Model, created that with Chief Lorenzen from Iowa Motor Vehicle Enforcement. And um, that's something now 48 states have adopted in part or in whole. And basically it activates Highway Patrol um, to again be trained on this issue, but then to reach the CDL holders, the commercial driver's license holders in their states. Um, part of that, 12 states have now passed legislation requiring anti-trafficking training um, for uh, in the CDL schools. So before these truck drivers ever get out on the road, they now receive anti-trafficking training. And we work hard to, to continue to pass those kinds of bills as well across the United States. Um, so they're an imperative piece and we routinely bring them to the table um, at our coalition builds with the trucking uh, industry in their state to really sit down and discuss what is a mo what is a local approach uh, look like in our state regarding this. So, um, you know, the, the law enforcement, but also state agencies, it's not just Highway Patrol, but it's also uh, Department of Transportation, Department of Motor Vehicles, Department of Licensing, Department of Revenue. Anywhere and everywhere you have an overlap with a CDL holder, those guys can do something to fight human trafficking, whether they're educating the truck drivers in their state or, again, if they have licensing counters, we have cases of licensing counter personnel actually identifying and assisting victims as well. So we're trying to train them all. As far as what a trucker can be looking for, um, you know, we have on our wallet card all sorts of red flag indicators, um, minor selling commercial sex, any type of pimp control, right? Car pulls up, drops three or four girls off. You know, they start working trucks. Um, sometimes truck drivers have identified literally the trafficker following the girl from truck to truck, right? Like the, the controller is on site. Um, they've witnessed live beatings. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things. If a victim is talking about having to meet a quota, right? They've got to make, make a quota or she talks about her boyfriend or her daddy figure. Um, those are also red flags. If she, um, and sometimes it's he as well, um, you know, if they talk about um, 
or excuse me, if they have signs of bruising or they have tattoos that are showing ownership, um, you know, all of these are potential red flags. And so we're asking the driver to be taking a second look for these types of things. Drivers also find themselves in, in conversations with victims uh, where they can ask some questions like, when's the last time you've ever seen your family? You know, are you free to come and go as you please? Um, do you get to keep any of the money you make, right? And so if they, and we've had many, many uh, drivers engage uh, potential victims in conversations. And so there's multiple layers upon which they can engage and act. Um, so yes, obviously if they're seeing a crime in progress, like a minor being sold for sex, call 911. Um, if, if they're unsure, or in order to act, um, access victim services, we ask them to call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, uh, which is run by Polaris, and they're a nonprofit based out of DC. Um, and they receive the government grant to run this hotline. Um, and they are the ones who not only are connected to law enforcement in every state, but also victim service providers in every state. And we have had cases where drivers are calling the number with victims to access those services. So again, we want them to report crimes in progress. If they have questions, if what they're looking at is a potential case of human trafficking, call the hotline, get your questions asked. Um, to access victim services with, um, you know, the victim there as well, you can certainly call the hotline. One of the things the hotline does for us is that they capture data that truck drivers um, are providing. So how many calls are coming into the hotline, how many cases that generates, involving how many victims. So that's all very helpful information for us to continue to show relevancy and impact. Oh, very, very interesting, very interesting, uh, very thorough. Uh, I'd like to come back to the question of impact in, in a moment, but what would you say are some of the biggest challenges, Candice, you faced on your journey? You know, early on, and, and this is still true to some degree, is the media sensationalism. So, you know, here we are trying to convince this industry, hey, this is a problem, you can be part of the solution, but it's already very, very delicate. You know, primarily we're asking drivers to, you know, watch for sex trafficking. Um, and again, we've already addressed this. It, it does mean that there are some within your industry that are helping uh, to perpetuate the crime by being a buyer, right? No buyer, no victim. Um, and so it's, it's not an easy conversation. It's not necessarily, right, your, your number one corporate social responsibility. I mean, the environment is just so much, so much safer, right? <laughs> We're definitely dealing with a, 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 a heavier topic, you know, a more sensationalized topic. And sure enough, um, you know, I was misquoted in the Associated Press and um, media would turn out stories that were, you know, the, the dark side of the trucking industry and make the trucking industry, you know, seem like the, the truck stops were all horrible places and, um, you know, lock up your children and nobody's safe. And, you know, that kind of thing just hurts our mission so much. And so, you know, we, we literally had to, to do uh, quite a bit of damage control. Um, you know, early on. And because one of the things we were promising the industry is actually you're going to get good press eventually. Um, and sure enough, that has now happened, but it took years for that to occur. And meanwhile, the entire country, including our media, uh, were learning uh, about the realities of human trafficking. It was growing right on um, uh, in the public consciousness. Um, and so over the years, that has certainly helped. Um, but you still have headlines that talk about child prostitution. Oh, 
even though our federal laws, uh, you know, make that very, very clear. There is no such thing as a child prostitute. So that was, that was pretty tough. Uh, but it ultimately led us to the table with our, our partners, some that had been burned through some of these media stories, and we were able to, to really sit down together and figure out how do we come up with a plan uh, to, to basically overcome this and still get the good work done, which we were able to do and I'm thankful for. So that was always, that, that's, that's a big challenge. We still have to be very careful what we say to media today, and I've turned down um, all sorts of, of media outlets, big media outlets, because I listened to the approach for the story and I recognize we don't want anything like that. You know, yeah, you may get great response from your story, but if you heard our mission, well then forget it. So we've told a lot of the big guys we're not interested. Um, so I would say that, and I would say the other one is, is turnover. Another big challenge is turnover. This is extremely, um, you know, this is an extreme challenge, I would say on the law enforcement and state agency side. Uh, what we're finding with our law enforcement partners is a lot of their departments just rotate these chiefs or captains um, just routinely. So we deal with a lot of, okay, having to onboard the new person or sometimes, you know, and this, this actually just happened with a major partner in, in industry. Um, you know, the new people that came in, they kind of cleaned house and the new people that came in there, there just wasn't much um, history that had been provided. So it's almost like we're starting over at square one, which is, you know, discouraging. Um, but, you know, it, it's a matter of trying to put more infrastructure in place for better transition protocols uh, with, with our partners and also just being patient and um, helping to get that new person to understand, hey, this is a reality. This is how we've worked together. Um, you know, can, can you also carry on this partnership and in fact make it stronger? So those have um, historically been two of the biggest challenges for, for TAP. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can imagine the media is uh, in a pretty uh, terrible yeah. state at the moment in America and, and not just there, but um, yeah, managing your, the stories uh, de delicately, um, uh, very important. Now you talked a bit about, uh, I guess we call it coalition building. Um, mm -hmm. how, how easy is that? I mean, the, when you talk about it, it sounds like a pretty flowing, natural kind of thing. But what are a <laughs> few key insights into how, how you think and talk and, and make coalitions work? Yeah, so um, we, we just recognize, and really it was actually, um, I got a call one day early on in, in 2012 um, from an NGO out of California, an anti-trafficking NGO. And they said, hey, you know what? Our undercover investigators who work anti-trafficking or who work human trafficking cases, they want to sit down with their truck stops in their area and have a meeting. And that's how the first coalition build was born. And so really what it is about, and, and literally in that room uh, when we were conducting the training, uh, we had a general manager of a truck stop like slap his head and go, holy cow, I think there's an underage brothel uh, operating behind my truck stop um, as a massage parlor, the massage parlor front. And of course, the human trafficking investigators took down all that information. And so what it really impressed upon me was, we got to get these guys in the same room. You know, we, we have to have them all have the same kind of training, and we need them talking to each other, right? And so what you have is, you got these truck stop general managers who, first of all, can express concern if their calls in general to law enforcement are being made or not. 
But then helping these guys understand when they call in to say, uh, I suspect human trafficking is happening on my property, not just prostitution, because then all of a sudden the level of response is elevated. Um, we have those detectives or um, again, just the you know officers giving out their work cell phones directly to the general managers of truck stops who go back and, and train their entire staff on this issue, right? And they're making these connections. Um, we partner with the attorney general uh, to conduct these meetings so that they understand from a statewide level what the attorney general's office is doing in response. We always have a service provider there um, that helps explain again to the audience what, what uh, services are available in their state and in their area um, in regards to victim recovery and what to do. We talk about um, you know, protocols um, and, and how to take a victim-centered approach from an industry perspective, but also from a law enforcement perspective um, and make sure that the victim is not um, continue to, is treated as such and is not treated like a criminal. Um, because typically truck stops used to just run them off their property. That was the protocol, just get rid of them. And of course, cops would handcuff them and you know, put them in the back of a patrol car. And so how do you shift that, right? How is the victim actually begin to be treated like a victim? And so one of the key things out of every coalition build, we have a survivor of human trafficking, get up and tell her story and train audiences um, and tell them what it's really like being out there. Um, and that's always an extremely impactful part of the presentation. Um, for everybody listening. And so, you know, here you are sitting next to, you know, the, the, the people in the room who can actually um, close these loopholes that traffickers exploit. You know, traffickers count on ignorance and apathy. Nobody knows, nobody cares. Well, if all these truck stop employees are trained, right? And if the cops that show up are actually trained and they're, they're looking to, for, to, to not just hopefully recover the victim, but arrest the buyer as well as the trafficker, well, then it's going to make it a little bit harder, right, to conduct business at places where, you know, <laughs> you know, truck stops or, or places where you have uh, folks like this trained. So, you know, that's really the intent. And um, it's just a matter of getting these guys to come to the table. Um, and so from our invitations to everything in the meeting, again, we take an empowerment approach. You know, come and learn basically what human trafficking looks like in your state and how you can be part of the solution. Um, and from the beginning, we've had an incredible amount of interest. In fact, yesterday we just hosted our first virtual, um, thanks COVID, our first virtual uh, coalition build. Um, and uh, it was for the DC area. And we had you know, over 100 participants and breakout sessions and, and great feedback and, and uh, great survey responses um, from all sorts of state agency and industry members there. So. You know, this is, this is something that, again, you know, TAT sees itself as a convener um, and then a catalyst. So everyone who walks away from our coalition build has their next steps. They have action steps to take. Nobody should leave that meeting thinking, well, now what, right? Everybody should be empowered and should know I, this is what I can do in my niche, in my sphere to go and make a difference in fighting this crime. Uh, that's really the goal of these coalition builds. And at the heart of this, again, it was something we discussed in, in, in the uh, Ashoka Systems Change podcast, is a very systems approach. So understanding the systems and the different parts of the, the, the system and, and the different processes. And as you say, in, in this case, so people understand what comes next. 
you know, what the connections are. You just talk a little bit about the importance of, of a systems perspective. Absolutely. So, you know, take a state agency. Again, these guys may or may not have had any kind of protocol or policy in place around fighting human trafficking. And so what TAT wants to do is to come alongside and show them, you know, hey, here's your pathway for engagement. This is what you can do. Um, that's where our, our models come in for state agencies. Um, and by actually getting them in the room with CDL holders who they consistently um, you know, engage with for a variety of issues, and they all receive the same training, what we are finding is that then activates a state agency to become engaged. So now what we're seeing is state agencies across the United States now have policies and protocols in place around anti-trafficking measures. They didn't have this before TAP. Same kind of thing on an industry side. You know, here you have these fleets, right? Or truck stops, um, or even manufacturers or dealers, or, you know, now we go to the Amazons of the world, the shippers, right? Who hire carriers or maybe have a private fleet. Again, maybe they have something on the books to fight human trafficking. Most didn't before TAT. And here we come in and say, hey, you know what? Here you go. Here's a whole, you know, protocol. It's not just the training. They can adopt anti-trafficking in person's policies. You know, there's all sorts of ways for their drivers to engage. You know, here's a, here's a full menu for you basically uh, to, to pick and choose from or implement it all so that now you as a business, right, as an industry member have, you know, you've activated what you already do to combat human trafficking. So absolutely, it's, it's systems change from, you know, <laughs> whether, whether it's a cultural shift within the driver him, himself or herself, you know, all the way through to any kind of uh, state or local agency and, and even for national associations. Um, we provide those pathways of engagement um, in order to really activate them to, to combat this crime. Uh, very interesting, very interesting. What support have you had, Candice, on your journey as a social entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, um, first and foremost for me is, is my faith. Um, you know, my family started Chapter 61 Ministries based off of Isaiah Chapter 61, um, where, where it's talking about setting the captives free. So we believe that um, we are doing um, God's work in this and to fight against the exploitation and oppression of evil um, and what is being done to, you know, millions and millions of people. Uh, so that's first and foremost, you know, God keeps me going and I believe that this is, um, you know, serving a higher purpose. Um, certainly my family, of course, um, you know, believes in this, is passionate about it, um, and even getting to work with my sister and my mom is, is our volunteer communications director, um, that while there's certainly some challenges working with family, um, the fact that we're in this together has been pretty tremendous. My oldest sister actually worked for the attorney general's office and before that was an ADA for Bear County and she prosecuted human trafficking cases and got life sentences for human traffickers. So she's pretty amazing. And my little sister works at Amazon, helped get us in there at Amazon. So it's, it's been a family affair for sure. Um, you know, uh, some initial uh, TAT champions um, who have been long-term now board members, um, their support's been tremendous. Ashoka was an early believer. Um, the support, the encouragement, 
Um, the, the language um, that they also provide in terms of just thinking about, um, you know, your social venture um, and, and just again, just that whole construct in terms of change making and, and providing a, a set of language that, that could be applied uh, to Tat's work. I love that. And also just, again, being inspired um, by, um, you know, my fellow fellows um, has, has been tremendous. Um, and then, of course, as the team continued to grow, you know, again, working with like-minded, passionate people who um, care so much and, you know, put, put it all on the line out there because they want to see victims recovered. Um, and then certainly the truck drivers, you know, I've met so many of these guys, like just so many of them and interacted with them and heard their stories and um, see their hearts. And, you know, when you pull into a truck stop or wherever you are, you know, you're on your break, you're tired, you only have so many hours sleep, um, you know, you got to get back up, whatever. And, and we are saying, hey, you know, when you get that knock on the door at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., you know, be kind, be compassionate, see the humanity. And they're doing it, you know, they're doing it. And that inspires me um, and motivates me because I see these guys especially right now in the middle of, you know, coronavirus, they've still been out there. They've been on the front lines, keeping America moving, making sure we have groceries on our shelves, medical supplies, and, and they're still making calls. I mean, I just, I just, I, I think they're amazing. I really think they're amazing. And I've, um, you know, made, made friendships with, with many of them. So just actually thankful for the drivers, the truck stop employees who just care enough um, to follow through and make those phone calls. So that certainly, you know, helps, helps keep me going. As an organization, how do you measure your impact? With program expansion, we have certainly been able to um, measure more points of impact um, in terms of partnership development, um, model replication, which states are doing what, legislation getting passed, um, how many are TAT trained, um, you know, so there's, there's all sorts of impact from a partnership development infrastructure, um, you know, and, and growth perspective we can point to, but all of it, all of it goes back to how many calls are coming in from truck drivers generating how many cases involving how many victims, right? It's, it's those numbers from the hotline. It's the stories that we hear, you know, for example, um, we just, uh, one of the law enforcement that we trained from Colorado State Patrol Port of Entry um, just in June uh, pulled over a truck and the passenger within the truck had all of her hair shaved off. She looked forlorn, malnourished. Well, this cop had just received our in-depth, four-hour in-depth law enforcement training a couple months before. And so she did everything by the book. Um, she separated the potential trafficker from the victim talked to the victim, you know, asked all sorts of questions, talked to the driver who was whew, uh, not a good guy. Um, he's the one actually brought up human trafficking, said human trafficking was a farce, said he runs a party bus in Oklahoma. She runs them both through the system. She doesn't get any hits, but so she has to let him go. But she doesn't feel right. So she runs his name again through a different system and she gets a hit. He's wanted in Oklahoma on child, uh, you know, sexual abuse charges. And so, you know, she contacts us, she contacts Wyoming Highway Patrol and all these agencies start working together. And sure enough, they track him down and Oklahoma says, yes, extradite him. 
and he gets arrested and she's now away from from this guy who was about 30 years her senior you know she thought she was in love with him it's like the classic grooming response and she's now back home with her family it, you know it's stories like that and the one that just came in at our truck stop i mean when we hear stories like that and that cop said you know it's tats four hour training that's how i knew what to do that's how i knew the signs to look for um you know when when those success stories come in i mean that's really what it's all about so yes there's all of these points of impact from partnership development and infrastructure work but it all leads back down to what's what's happening in the field um how are how many victims are actually being recovered um what are truckers actually seeing what are they taking action on and you know we we don't even get data from 911 or sheriff's offices we only get some of this data from the hotline and yet even then, um, you know, you can see the impact drivers can make when they're educated and equipped and empowered to do so. Yeah, wow, wow. And at the same time, from a systems perspective, you've been working on getting bills through state assemblies and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's a, it's a rather uh, specific uh, kind of skill to have and, uh, uh, and I guess, uh, again, varies by state and so forth. But, uh, what, why is it important and what, what are a couple of lessons about trying to get you know policy changed at that level yeah so uh we've definitely been on a journey here learn the hard way we uh, two bills passed in arkansas and kansas that require require our training before, even for cdl renewal um and we learned after doing that that's not the way to go even our most loyal supporters the trucking industry is a very overregulated industry and so we didn't want to become just one more thing that they were forced to do. Um, and so we stepped back from pursuing that type of legislation and began to work with states around, hey, let's get this in at the CDL school level. Drivers are already in a seat, right? They're in a desk, they're in a classroom environment. Let's just get this added to the training. And we had already been working. We work with uh the largest private and public uh, truck driving school associations so many schools were already doing this voluntarily but we had legislators coming to us from states saying hey we want to pass legislation around this and we actually found tremendous support from the state trucking associations from the schools themselves to go ahead and pass these types of bills and so yes it varies state by state in terms of you know if it's a legislator that comes to us or sometimes it's actually been Department of Justice or Department of Transportation even, um, you know, that have come to us and said, hey, we, we really want to do this. Um, and so we do, we work with them in terms of, you know, for here in Colorado, I worked with the leader of this, you know, the president of the State Trucking Association. Uh, we had to testify, you know, for the committee in the Senate, for the committee in the House, um, you know, brought in our, our um, you know, Tat testified, the president testified, we brought in a truck driver, brought in a survivor of human trafficking, um, and we got that bill passed. And so, uh, you know, whether we're, we're writing a letter in support or, again, usually we're providing the, the ultimate training that the state implements, you know, Tat has found that this for us is a smart legislative approach. Um, and we also helped write federal legislation um, with Senator Klobuchar's office. Uh, that's where you saw the creation of the United States Department of Transportation's Advisory Committee on Human Trafficking, which I was able to serve on. Um, and we created a report that actually um, enlisted all sorts of best practices for state agencies and particularly Department of Transportation's, but even broader state agencies. 
um, and uh, industry transportation professionals, industry members uh, to combat human trafficking. And, um, you know, uh, the, the, the idea behind the advisory committee um, that occurred when I was on the phone with the legal counsel for the Commerce Committee and they were saying, how, how else can the USDOT get involved? And I said, be a convener and create a committee. And so that got written into uh, an amendment from, from Klobuchar's bill that passed and, and uh, you know, we finished up that report uh, last year in 2019. And it went out to every governor and it went out to every state DOT. So again, thinking through what are the best ways to uh, maximize legislation um, and policy change from a systems perspective. Um, and now we have this great, um, you know, asset, this tool that states can use um, that's been approved all the way up from, you know, the United States. It's coming from the United States Department of Transportation, um, which again, helps in terms of legitimizing fighting human trafficking in the first place. And then I insisted that this report each uh, for each industry and state agency have a quick implementation guide. Here's how you get started. Here's what we're asking you to do. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as we know, it's been fairly well received. Amazing. That's amazing. Candace. What's next for TAT? So we need to rescale. <laughs> so with COVID, we had to let five people go and that was so painful. Um, you know, I think everybody is feeling the economic crunch. Um, so, you know, for me, it's always about, we have to scale sustainably. So TAD has to work its way back up to where it, it, it was. Um, you know, we had, I'd let my director from Canada, um, who's leading our whole Canadian operation, I had to let her go, but we wanna hopefully, hire her back soon. Um, so, you know, we're, we're fundraising hard uh, now and trying to get back to where at the beginning of 2021, um, you know, we can rehire some of those positions. Um, and of course, I think every, everybody is, is looking to, to restabilize. From there, um, you know, we want to really continue to, to grow our work in Canada. There's so much crossover between borders and we get every truck driver up their train as well as the bus industry and work with law enforcement. Um, but then also we had just launched our energy program uh, at the beginning of this year. And uh, not only did COVID hit, but you know, oil and gas industry just went into a free fall. Um, so obviously that's just been really tough this year to grow that, but it's the same kind of thing. You know, this is a 6 million um, member industry across the nation. You've got oil and gas um, and solar and wind, and they go into these towns and the social impact on these towns with the uh, number of people and equipment moving in, right? It, 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 sometimes it's too much around the infrastructure. And so, and we also know the traffickers go where the money is, right? And so you have these large populations of, of men with disposable income, they're away from their families. And so traffickers prey on that. So how can we educate, equip, empower, and mobilize the energy industry, right? To, to identify, to recognize where trafficking is occurring and report it effectively. So that's uh, you know, our biggest next goal. At the same time, continuing to work with existing partners and strengthening those partnerships. There's always something else somebody can do. Um, and we still need to saturate the trucking industry in the United States. We're not, we're not there yet. We still have 
um, plenty more drivers who still need this information in front of them. And, and that's on the bus industry side as well. Well, that's a great vision. You have a full plate there, Candice, but also I get the impression, the energy and the drive and the vision to, to make that all succeed. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights and all of the great work you're doing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.